I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. When a wife and mother of two is shot on the doorstep of her home, the shocking story would captivate the nation. This is the Amy Fisher Story. Good to see you. Hi, Megan. How are you today? I'm good. Today's story is one that I am very surprised I haven't covered yet. It was like, hmm, wow, must have been an oversight. And it wasn't a suggestion by a listener, but rather it was one that I chose myself. And the reason why, since you are going to ask, I know, (laughs) is that this infamous crime happened in the town I grew up in. And friends of mine happened to know some of the people personally that were involved. And I think anyone who's our age who lives in this area, the tri-state area, knows the name Amy Fisher. I definitely think so. This case has, it kind of has it all. It has multiple victims. It's one of those stories where victim and offender might be one and the same, depending on your opinion. And while I'm sure we all know the headlines, Amy, you might not know the entire story. or Maybe you don't remember because this was a long time ago now. Despite the heavy coverage on this case, I wanted to spotlight the story because it brings us some interesting themes about juvenile cases in particular and the way in which the juvenile involved was treated by the system and how she was portrayed in the media. The victim and her husband received a lot of media coverage as well, and I'd like to talk about how they were portrayed and what our thoughts are about what we think justice is in this story. Megan, will this be one of the cases you bring up in your media and crime class, right? You're teaching that? I'm teaching that, yes. I'm Well, I'm supposed to be teaching it now, but if you recall, I uh, had to step in and teach a, another course. So it's moved to the spring, and I will absolutely be highlighting this case in media and crime, for sure. All right, we have lots to discuss, but without further ado, let me begin with some background on Amy Fisher. Amy Fisher was born in 1974 and raised in Merrick, New York. Now, that's a town just a few miles away from where I grew up on Long Island, on the south shore of the island, and I'd say about an hour from Manhattan. The only child to Roseanne and Elliot Fisher, 
Amy had a troubled relationship with her father, who it seemed that she tried to please, but she couldn't quite connect with him. And I don't know that he showed her as much affection as she would have liked. I heard that they would fight a lot. But on the flip side, she was reportedly very close with her mother. Amy suffered sexual abuse as a child, reporting that she was molested by a family member, though she refused to say who, at a very young age. And then at age 13, she reported being raped by a worker in her home. Amy went on to become quite sexually active as a teenager and had an abortion around age 15. She had many boyfriends as well during this time, but none were as serious as the one she met when she was just 16 years old. However, while he was her boyfriend, he was no boy because he was actually a man of 36 years old. And while the events we explore today were referred to differently then, I'd like us to remember throughout this case and discussion that this relationship today would be illegal. It would not be considered a relationship. No, it would fall under statutory rape because she is under the age of consent. Correct. And even if it was illegal back then, it wasn't really treated that way. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to cover the case. Mm -hmm. So who was this 36-year-old man Amy Fisher fell in love with? Well, that was none other than Joseph Buttafuoco, whom she met when she took her car to his auto body shop. You see, Amy's parents had bought her a car, but she was not the best driver. At 16, who really is, right? And she kept having these fender benders. Afraid of her father's reaction after one of these accidents, you know, this was following a couple already, 16-year-old Amy took her car to Complete Auto Body and Fender in Baldwin, New York, to price out the costs before telling her father this time. Now, this is where she met Joey Buttafuoco, the owner of the auto body shop. And according to Amy, Joey suggested that she tell her father that someone had hit her car and ran and not that she had hit her own car. Do you remember that? It was his suggestion that she lie to her father? No, I don't remember that. I just remember the names involved in this case, but I actually don't remember the details at all. I didn't remember that detail. And all of a sudden I see a huge red flag early on when you have, you know, a grown man telling her to lie to her father about it. Mm -hmm. But that was the story that Amy told her father, returning with him the next day to get an estimate. After that, Amy would return several more times to have her car repaired and a stereo installed. On one of these trips in the summer of 1991, Joey drove Amy home since she had to leave her car at the shop this time for a repair. And it was on this car ride or after this car ride that the two had their first sexual encounter. Again, just one more reminder, while we discuss the relationship, this is statutory rape and all following sexual encounters should be viewed this way as well. Nonetheless, it was at her home during this time or following this ride that they had their first sexual encounter and... After that, they began to have regular sexual relations. Do we know, was this a pattern with Amy being with older men or was this the first time she was with an older man that we know of? That we know of, but there would be another older man in the story as well. So as I was saying, I guess a few weeks into this illegal relationship, Amy contracted an STD from Joey, but lied to her parents about it because she knew they would file a police report. Around this time as well, Amy began working as an escort in order to pay for a new car for herself. Though she was 16, she reportedly carried herself as much older. As the school year began, Amy wasn't doing well academically, and she was growing very attached to Joey, believing she was in love with him and wanting him to leave his wife. And I'm assuming he 
was not planning on doing that. This was just a fling for him. According to, I would say, both Amy and Joey at that point, he refused to leave his wife. Did he have children? Yes, he has two children, and I will discuss them in a bit. Okay. And he had been married to his high school sweetheart for many years. I mean, they had two children, as I just said, a beautiful home, a thriving life. He had substance abuse issues in the past, but his wife stood by him through his rehabilitation. So I think he wasn't about to give up this life that he had for, as you had said, what he probably perceived as a fling with a 16-year-old girl. And after telling Amy this much, she broke it off with Joey and she attempted suicide, which I did not know or remember. So she was seriously depressed. But months later, by the new year, Joey and Amy were seeing each other again. Now, I guess in the meantime, she also began seeing another older man named Paul Makeley. He was a gym owner, and I don't know how much older he was. It wasn't as significant as the age gap with Joey. I think he might have been in his early 20s. And even though she was seeing Paul, Joey was the real source of her affection when they reconciled. The only problem for Amy was Joey's wife, Mary Jo Buttefuoco. And while Amy knew that Joey was not about to leave his wife, she came up with another idea to solve the problem. Her plan wouldn't involve divorce, though. It would be more permanent. Amy Fisher set out to find a gun and possibly a person to help her get rid of Joey's wife. And she found it in a man named Peter Guagenti, a friend of a friend. And Peter would supply Amy with a handgun and a ride. That's right, a ride to Mary Jo Buttefuoco's house in Massapequa, New York, where I grew up. Also, now, as we know, the home to alleged serial killer Rex Hurman. So Massapequa is definitely a busy town for crime, but it's also a pretty big town in New York. For example, I would say because I went to high school there, I graduated Massapequa High School. My class, I think, had something like over 500 kids. Mm. So that's pretty big. It's it's pretty substantial. You know, driving from one side of Massapequa to the other can take you 25 minutes or so, 20 to 25 minutes. Mm hmm. And Joey and Mary Jo lived in a beautiful area near the beach called Biltmore Shores. I remember this because I loved this area. It was so beautiful. I did not live there. I didn't (laughs) live near the water, but I had a, a nice neighborhood as well. So on the morning of May 19th, 1992, 37-year-old Mary Jo Buttefuoco was at home painting some furniture in her backyard while Joey was at work and her children at school. A typical, you know, work school day. Mm Mm-hmm. While she was alone, Amy went up to the Buttefuoco residence armed with a gun and a story about her little sister. Well, this is clearly a lie considering she's an only child, right? So what is this tale she's telling? Good question. She claimed to be a girl named Anne Marie and asked if Mary Jo would come outside and speak to her about her husband, Joey. Mary Jo opened the door hearing her husband, Joey. This girl clearly knows him, you know, wanting to know what she had to say. Amy told her that Joey had been having an affair with her little sister. And she's 16 years old as is. I think Mary Jo was kind of shocked. She didn't believe this story looking at, you know, a young girl. And so Amy offered proof in the form of a T-shirt from Joey's auto body shop. But Mary Jo knew they gave these out all the time. And so, you know, this wasn't proof of anything other than they got Mm -hmm. a T-shirt from him. And so she said, you know what, I'm going to call my husband and get to the bottom of this. When she turned to walk in her house, Amy Fisher shot Mary Jo in the side of her head. She then ran to a waiting maroon Thunderbird driven by an unknown young man at the time Mm -hmm. and fled the scene. But the 
the young man driving was this guy, Peter, right? That's correct. Mary Jo is rushed to the hospital, Nassau Community Medical Center, where I was born, by the way, and she was taken into surgery. So I'm assuming a neighbor heard the commotion and called 911. I'm assuming Amy didn't call. Yes, no, it was someone in the surrounding okay. area. It, it happened mm-hmm. in front of her house in a residential neighborhood. When she was shot, she collapsed on her porch. Mm-hmm. Mary Jo's odds of survival were not good, but much to everyone's surprise, she survived the initial surgery. Unfortunately, the bullet would have to remain in her head, though. It was just too risky to remove, but it looked like Mary Jo was going to pull through. While the surgeons worked to stabilize Mary Jo, the police began their investigation with the big question. Why would anyone want to murder this wife and mother? Now, Mary Jo, seriously injured, had woken up the day after being shot and police wanted to speak with her immediately. Mm -hmm. It would be very difficult, though, because the right side of Mary Jo's face was paralyzed and she couldn't hear out of that ear. Let's also remind our young listeners that this is in the 90s and there was not surveillance the way we have it now. If something like this happened today, everyone has a ring camera or some other camera on their house. But at this time, if there's no eyewitnesses, they probably have nowhere to start. Exactly. Until they start talking to people. Yeah. So the bullet had missed Mary Jo's brain and it was a miracle that she survived. Not to mention that she was shocked to learn that she had been shot. She didn't know that. She didn't remember seeing a gun. You know, she felt a pain in the back of her head or she felt something, but she didn't know it was a gunshot. But she did tell the police about the girl who came to her home. And she recalled that she had this auto body T-shirt from Joey's business. Mm -hmm. After revealing this critical information, Joey Buttafuoco told the police that he was pretty sure he knew who this girl was. Mm -hmm. He said that the only shirt that he had given out recently that looked like that one was to a client of the shop, a then 17-year-old Amy Fisher. I'm assuming he failed to say that he was having an affair with this girl. Oh, he absolutely did. But that'll also become critical (laughs) to the story later. Mm -hmm. Joey did, however, give the police her address. Amy Fisher was at home, like Joey said, and the police immediately took her in for questioning. At first, Amy denied having anything to do with Mary Jo's shooting. But her denials didn't last very long. The police showed Mary Jo a photo of Amy Fisher, possessed by Joey, by the way, and she identified Amy very quickly as the shooter. Now, Joey's story at this time was just that Amy Fisher, I think he's starting to reveal that she might have had a little crush on him and gave him some photos. No big deal. He's dismissing this. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming Amy's not going to be shy about the affair, though. No, she's not going to. After finding out that the police had already ID'd her, Amy confessed to the shooting, but she told the police it had been an accident and that she and Mary Jo had fought on the doorstep and gotten into a physical altercation fighting over this gun. And that's how it went off. But as you just mentioned, was she quiet? No, she said immediately the motive here was that she had been having an affair with Mary Jo's husband, Joey. Now, this was a big shock. But was it true or was this, you know, just her claim That was the question at the time, the one that the police really wanted to know. So they asked Joey about this, and he denied any such relationship existed, as well as having no knowledge of this horrific crime that was committed against his wife. Now, the police didn't necessarily believe Joey was telling the truth, but first they had to book a would-be murderer. (laughs) 
Amy was arraigned on May 22nd, 1992, and the bail was set in the amount of $2 million. You know, I'm not positive, but I do want to say I think that might have been the highest bail ever set in Nassau County at that time. I was going to say that seems extremely high for the time. Even today, an attempted murder, I would expect maybe something around that, but I don't. that's even a little high for today, wouldn't you say? It's pretty high. It's what you see in murder cases. If someone's not denied bail, then you see typically somewhere north of $1 million. But it was a lot for the time. And it was also her victim had survived. She was 16 years old. So I think there were a lot of factors that made some people think that this was high. Hey, well, other people thought, no, this is, you know, a very, very serious crime. Is Mary Jo and Joey kind of a united front at this point? Yes, they are. I'll definitely discuss that as well. I'm assuming Mary Jo doesn't believe that her husband was having an affair with this child. Mary Jo did not believe that whatsoever. She believed that her husband was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Amy Fisher spent some time in jail, but her attorney cleverly raised the money for her bail by selling Amy's story for a movie. Do you remember this? There were three movies about this case. There was one from Amy's point of view, one from Joey and Mary Jo's, and one that was independent. I don't. I was pretty young at the time. I remember it being like a media sensation, but I think I was too young to really be paying too much attention to this. I like how Amy is two or three years younger than me and she's staying too young. And I'm about to tell you that I saw all three of those movies. I can (laughs) tell you the actresses that starred in them. I know for a fact Alyssa Milano was in one and Drew Barrymore was in another. And I think the other actress was, if I got this right, oh, Noelle something. I can't remember completely. But Megan, as we talked about before, you were into true crime much younger than I was. Yes, I was. So this wasn't really like, yeah, this wasn't really on my radar when I was a child. No, but also, to be honest, even though we're only a couple, three years apart, I think it is, I would have been 15 or 16. You would have been 12 or 13. So that's yeah, kind of that's a big difference. And yeah. plus, it happened in your town. That's very yes. different. Although I lived in Long Island at that time as well, but I was living in a different county. Okay. Yes. No, this happened in my town. So it was very big news. The media took hold of this story, plastering Amy's face everywhere and exposing her as a sex worker, which, by the way, she said Joey had suggested this to her, a way for her to make money. She said he kind of reveled in the idea of her doing this kind of work and being, you know, sexual with other men. I can't say for sure that that is true or not. That's not substantiated. But this is her claim. The media dubbed her the Long Island Lolita. Do you remember that? I do. Yep. So this was a media sensation outside of the courtroom. But what about inside the court? Would Amy go to trial or take a plea? That was really the million dollar question. So you were around the same age as Amy? Yes, she's a little bit older than me. She's a couple years older than me. Okay, so you wouldn't have been in like the same school as her at this time. No, but remember also Mary Jo and Joey lived in Massapequa, but Amy Fisher lived in Merrick. So she lived in a different town. It just happened in my town. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. However, I will point out that his children went to my school. And remember I said friends of mine knew them personally? Mm -hmm. Well, One of my friends babysat for his children, or at least one of his children. I remember that because I had lots of questions. And she was like, no, nothing was weird. They were fun. Mm -hmm. They were cool people. And then I had another friend whose younger sister, about three years younger than us, dated his son. And he had shown up at a couple of our parties, if I recall. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the million dollar question is whether or not Amy is going to go to trial. Ultimately, she took a plea deal from the prosecution in criminal court. 
Now, I point that out because she was tried as an adult. This was not in juvenile court. I actually thought it went to trial because in my memory, I could like picture what her and Joey both looked like in the courtroom. I know because this was very infamous. Her plea deal and what they said in the courtroom, what she said was infamous. And I had a feeling you were going to think that. So remember when I said, you know, you you know the story, but you're not going to remember the details. Well, Amy Fisher pled guilty to the reduced charge of reckless assault. This was downgraded from second degree murder. She detailed the events of the day of the shooting and her story was a little bit different this time. It had changed a few times. In this version, she said that there was no struggle, but rather when Mary Jo turned to go inside and call her husband, Amy hit her in the head with the gun and attempting to hit her again, the gun went off. Now, I don't think this was the truth, but the court accepted this allocution and the prosecutor did, and they let her stay out on bail prior to her sentencing. But right before her sentencing, Amy was in the media again, and it looked really bad for her. Remember the boyfriend, the gym owner, Paul Makeley? Mm -hmm. Well, Paul was about to sell Amy out, as other previous boyfriends had also done in the media. You see, I don't know if you remember this, but Paul made a video of Amy talking about her plea bargain. And she said that she deserved a Ferrari for her suffering, and she at least hoped to get conjugal visits in jail. So this did not bode well for her in the court of public opinion. Did she show any remorse Prior to this? No, she did not. And this was kind of the icing on the cake of the lack of remorse because she was Mm -hmm. very coldly and callously discussing this. And it was about Mm -hmm. her. Devastated by Paul's betrayal, Amy attempted suicide for a second time by overdosing on tranquilizers. She was clearly saved, though, and she received psychiatric counseling, followed by her sentence, you asked, of five to 15 years in prison and further immunity from charges if she testified against Joey at a later time. Oh, statutory rape? The prosecution wanted to get him. They wanted him for statutory rape. But they also believed that he might have been involved in the crime. I don't think they were absolutely sure. I think the reason Mm -hmm. Amy got a good deal was because they wanted Joey as well. They knew he was involved in something, and I think he was making... Remember, he was very vocal. He was making them look bad. I'm assuming Amy is very willing to throw him under the bus at this point because he betrayed her. She absolutely was. In her eyes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, there was still a sentencing hearing. And at this sentencing hearing, Mary Jo made a very powerful statement detailing her pain and suffering and pointing to the fact that Amy had not shown any remorse for her actions. And she was also physically, you, you could see her injuries, right? Her face was paralyzed on one side? Yes, her face, the right side of her face was paralyzed. Her mouth, uh, I think, it drooped down. Mm-hmm. So you could see that, yes. At the sentencing, though, you know, people were waiting to see, would Amy say anything or what would she say? She did apologize in her own statement, saying the following, quote, If I could change everything, I would. If I could put my hand over her face and make it go away, I would. This was kind of the famous image that you're thinking of because she raised her hand and she said it and everyone remembers this statement. Yeah. The judge was unmoved, though, telling Amy that she was a disgrace, essentially. Amy was sent to serve her time at the Albion Correctional Facility upstate in New York. This is pretty high up there. I'd say it's a little over an hour from the Canadian border. What about Peter, the guy who was driving the car? I'm assuming he was held culpable in some way. Yes, he was. He received a jail sentence of six months for providing Amy with a gun and a ride to this crime. That's a small sentence, but okay. 
So she's tried as an adult, as you mentioned, and she got sent to an adult facility, but she's only what, like 17 probably at this point, right? At the time she was 17, I think she might have turned 18 somewhere in there because remember she was 17 when the shooting happened. And okay, this was over 16 the course. when the affair started. When okay. it started, yes. And she mm-hmm. was 16, I think turning 17. So she's probably about 18 now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is this the end of the story? Not at all. Remember that the police still suspected Joey of something. And they found motel receipts signed by Joey at the places Amy said they went. She detailed all the places that they visited during this, quote, affair. Now, they were looking at him for both conspiracy to commit murder and statutory rape because Amy was under 17 at the time when he began a sexual relationship with her. That being said, Mary Jo was very vocal about her belief in her husband, and she asked on camera, why the prosecutor would believe Amy when Amy had lied so much already, worked as a prostitute, and shot her. Those were her words. So she vocalized disdain for the prosecution. So Mary Jo just thought that Amy had an infatuation with her husband. That's correct, yes. But would the prosecutor respect Mary Jo's wishes? This is a complicated, this is always complicated, right? Because they're in this spot where Mary Jo's the victim. Mm -hmm. So are they going to be respectful? It appeared that they would. They announced in October 1992 that they would not pursue charges against Joey Buttafuoco. I don't know if it was as much about Mary Jo, in part, But also they felt that Amy was just an unreliable witness. She had lied about too much. And that might have been the end of it. If Joey had kept his big mouth shut, but he could not. He did media appearances a lot and some of them very sleazy, like the one he did with Howard Stern. Now, to add fuel to the fire, some of Joey's auto shop employees were aware that Joey had been carrying on this relationship with a teenage girl. And they came forward to speak the truth. They hadn't before, but I think that they were very incensed that Joey was so arrogant, that he was lying so brazenly, and that he was doing it so publicly in the media. In these media appearances, Joey was just talking smack about Amy and standing by his wife? Or like, what was his point? I mean, well, he has a way about him, but he was very indignant, but he also joked about her, you know, things that just didn't look good on him at all. Mm -hmm. We always talk about affect and the way people act too. And I will tell you, people act differently, but there's definitely an expectation that as the husband of a woman who has just been shot, that you would be by your wife's side and maybe you wouldn't be out there doing media appearances that aren't focused on the victimization Mm -hmm. of your wife. So while Amy might not have been a reliable witness, the prosecution now had a case with these other witnesses that came forward. And in April of 1993, Joey Buttafuoco was indicted for statutory rape. At this point, the reason that they didn't pursue charges for Joey's involvement in planning of the murders because they didn't have evidence. The only thing they really had was Amy's testimony. And Amy had proven unreliable. And there was no way to corroborate this. So the evidence against him for the statutory rape, I'm assuming, was the eyewitness accounts of people who he worked with who saw the two together and Amy herself. And the motel receipts. He signed mm-hmm. them, his own name. Yeah. And it was exactly when and where Amy said it would be. So what happened here? Well, Joey, who had emphatically denied that he did anything and called Amy a liar and really berated her in the media, he ultimately pled guilty to one count of statutory rape. 
this is interesting because then 19-year-old Amy Fisher was brought back to his sentencing and allowed to make a victim impact statement because she was the victim here. Okay, and what is Mary Jo doing at this point? She's still standing by her husband? She's still standing by him, but hold that thought because I will explain a little bit, I promise. So during her impact statement, she told the court that when she met Joey, she was just a 16-year-old girl who was taken advantage of by a man twice her age and that she wouldn't be where she was if not for this relationship. Joey's lawyer, oh, I saw this, he was just as theatrical as his client, and he tried to persuade the judge not to give Joey any jail time, but the judge was not moved, and Joey was sentenced to six months in jail. So did Mary Jo divorce Joey? She did not. As you said, she still stood by him. And this was bad for her from a public standpoint. The court of public opinion turned on her from what I remember. She wasn't a very likable victim. And I say that in quotes because she was vocal and she showed contempt for the system, as well as standing by the man who had cheated on her with a minor. I think this also goes to the point we expect victims to be perfect, but they aren't perfect. They're people. Was Joey still denying and he was just saying he was taking the plea because it was just easier to get it done with, but he was still denying the fact that he ever had sexual relations with Amy? I think at this point, he was still denying it and saying, yes, this plea is just to make this go away. It's the you know best thing I could do for the family. However, I'm not sure his story was so believable anymore, but yes. So at this point, Joey goes to jail and Mary Jo becomes a true crime pariah. But what about Amy? Well. Amy did an interview from prison about a month into her sentence, saying that she was remorseful and understood that she did something wrong and had to pay for it. But prison life wasn't easy for Amy. She got in some trouble for behavioral infractions. But this might have been related to a bigger issue. And this one I did not remember. But in July of 1996, Amy filed a lawsuit against the New York Corrections Department claiming that she had been sexually assaulted by more than one correctional officer at the facility. As proof, she offered a pair of underwear that she had smuggled out of the prison to her mother, alleging it contained semen from one of her assailants. Now, the underwear was not tested, and the allegations were ultimately dismissed in court, with the court saying that Amy was simply not reliable. Hmm. Why wouldn't they just test the underwear? That would put it to rest. Well, also, they probably could argue that who knows where that underwear came from, yeah, you know, that's true. Um, who knows yeah. what contamination was on it, if it mm-hmm. was, you know, the source. So that yep. part I can understand. But it's unfortunate because if this is true, she's deemed unreliable because of previous actions yeah. or claims. So this is unfortunate. And we know enough now to know that there are serious sexual assaults in prisons against prisoners because they are mm-hmm. deemed unreliable and people might not believe them. Mm-hmm. A few years later, in 1998, Amy alleged that her attorney at the time of her plea had given her bad advice and that she wanted to withdraw her original plea. She also alleged that at the time, she was having a sexual relationship with her attorney. Oh, boy. Can you withdraw a plea? Well, apparently you can. So while her lawyer, Eric Nayberg, denied any sexual relationship, the court granted her motion to withdraw her plea and she was allowed to plead guilty again this time with Mary Jo testifying at her sentencing, but altogether different testimony. Why would she want to withdraw her plea and then plead guilty again? If anything, I thought she wanted to withdraw her plea so she could plead not guilty. She was withdrawing her plea because she said that her lawyer had told her it would be a shorter sentence with parole quickly. So she's 
pleading guilty again, but hoping for a resentencing of less than the five to 15 years. Okay. Now realize she had also been in prison for a couple of years at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary Jo told the judge at this sentencing that she had been corresponding with Amy and that she now forgave Amy for what she did. And she recommended that Amy be given a reduced sentence. What? Yes, I know. I see. I told you a lot of details about the story that you wouldn't remember. The judge agreed and gave Amy a sentence of three and a half to ten and a half years, which made Amy eligible for parole. So after seven years in prison, Amy Fisher was granted parole at the age of 24. Interestingly, though the justice system had concluded, the media was not finished with this story. And Amy, Joey, and Mary Jo found themselves in the media for a long time after Amy's release from prison. So let's take a look at what happened with all the players involved. I'll begin with Amy. After she was released, Amy became a columnist for the Long Island Press. She published a book titled If I Knew Then. She published this in 2004. Was it like a memoir? Yeah. And of no surprise to anyone, this became a New York Times bestseller. Did you read it? I did not read it. No. Mm. Probably because I'd watched every movie and consumed every other piece of media on it. But no, I did not read it. In 2003, Amy married Louis Bolera, a former NYPD police officer with whom she had three children. But despite lasting 12 years, the marriage was not a great one. And during one of their rocky times, Lou sold a sex tape of him and Amy for distribution. (laughs) Jeez. Yes. Okay. Amy went on to have breast augmentation and a number of other procedures, followed by her entrance into the adult film industry. She left that industry in 2011, and I don't know if you remember this, but famously appeared on Dr. Drew's Celebrity Rehab Show. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. She and Mary Jo appeared on some media outlets together, and she also appeared with Joey on television as well, claiming that they briefly reignited a sexual relationship as adults that did not last long. So I'm assuming Mary Jo at some point left Joey. She absolutely did. I'll tell you about that. Amy divorced Lou in 2015, and she moved back to Long Island to live a quieter life with her kids. Though she no longer does pornographic films with other people, she was reportedly running an adult webcam from the privacy of her own home to support her family. In the last few years, news about Amy Fisher has been relatively quiet. All right, now let's turn to Joey and Mary Jo. After Joey was released from jail, having served four months, he went home to live with Mary Jo. But he was arrested again in 1995 for patronizing a vice cop posing as a sex worker. And he received a sentence of probation. And Mary Jo leaves him finally, I hope. No. Interestingly, she still stood by Joey, although she said she realized at that moment exactly who he was. But Mary Jo had been in a lot of pain. And she said at that time she was heavily addicted to pain medications. And she was not able to care for herself. So the pair moved to California, and according to Mary Jo, she struggled with her addiction for a very long time before getting sober over 20 years ago now. Despite standing by her husband through so many indiscretions, by 2003, Mary Jo had finally had enough, and she divorced Joey. Regardless of the divorce, Joey continued doing media appearances on reality shows like Celebrity Boxing and Operation Repo, and he even got some small acting roles in movies. I think on celebrity boxing, you know, I could be mistaken, but I swear I think he boxed Lou Bolera, Amy Fisher's husband. What? I, I really think so. So bizarre. Okay. It's bizarre, but it's it's 
It's how they raised money and and it's how they stayed relevant, I guess, in the media. But I I do believe that was the case. Joey married Croatian-born Ivanka Franjko in 2005, and they're still married. In 2006, Joey convinced Mary Jo to do a reunion show with Amy Fisher on Entertainment Tonight. Apparently, he needed the money. Though his daughter was furious with him for this further embarrassment, I recently watched a 2020 episode with Mary Jo and with his daughter, Jessie. She said that she was so hurt and so embarrassed, and this was kind of at the heyday of the hard time she was having. She said that she ultimately forgave him. Mary Jo went on the Oprah show the year before in 2005 and met a doctor who helped repair her facial paralysis, and she felt great afterwards. She had to live for years with that paralysis, and this doctor was really helpful. He was able to restore her face to what it was pretty much before this awful crime. Mary Jo wrote the 2000 New York Times bestseller, Getting It Through My Thick Skull, Why I Stayed, What I've Learned, and What Millions of People Involved with Sociopaths Need to Know. That's an interesting title. Well, I mean, you know, she picked it for that reason. Mary Jo remarried but later divorced again, and her second ex-husband has since passed away, although I know they remained friendly after the divorce. Mary Jo lives with her daughter and near her son and granddaughter, and according to her, she can be on the beach in Malibu in 15 minutes from where she resides, and that's something she does very often. She does motivational speaking engagements and raises awareness for facial paralysis. Mary Jo does not speak to her ex-husband, Joey Buttafuoco, at all and says she is quite content. So that is where everyone wound up. What a story, huh? Yeah, a lot. That It's just so interesting when there's a story you know from so long ago and you think you know what happens. I really didn't know anything that happens. Right. The only thing I remember is the way that Amy Fisher was portrayed in the media. Right. Like you said, the Long Island Lolita, you know, they loved painting her like this. And she was a child. She was a child. And she was a traumatized teenage girl who found herself, you know, frankly, vulnerable to an older sleazy man. I always just thought, like, that's just the word that comes to my mind. Mm -hmm. She made a very bad decision because in her mind, limited by age, Mm -hmm. you know, not perfect rationality. This is bounded rationality. She believed that she could have Joey if Mary Jo was gone. She had mental health problems, clearly. She was a victim of sexual trauma. But nonetheless, she also planned and carried out a very brutal crime for which she was responsible. I don't know to what degree she ever really felt bad for what she did. You know, she had claimed to be remorseful and Mary Jo had spoken out in defense of her. But later on, it seems that Mary Jo had a change of heart and said she believed that Amy was only corresponding with her to try to get out early. And Amy really didn't seem remorseful after the fact. She said something once in the media like, well, she made more millions than I did. Mm. So, you know, that didn't come off well. But I think we can agree that Amy was still a victim. Mm -hmm, Definitely. She was a victim and offender. I would have to agree with Mary Jo that Joey Buttafuoco has sociopathic tendencies and clear, clear narcissism, which is just a terrible combo. Mm -hmm. He exploited this violent crime committed against his wife. And in doing so, he hurt his children, too. And I wonder if he really feels bad or if he feels remorseful about the destruction that he brought to his family's life. Did the system get it right? Well, this is a tough question for me. I'd say the punishment of Amy was appropriate, 
but certainly too lenient for Joey. I think he should have been charged with obstruction, Mm -hmm. perjury. He lied for a long time. There were other charges I think could have been leveraged against him. What do you think about that? Both Amy and Joey. The fact that she was so young when it happens, you know, if she was a little older, then I'd say maybe she should have had a longer sentence. Do you think it was appropriate what she got, though, the seven years? She tried to murder someone. I mean, I don't know. Seven years is a little short for me for attempted murder. It is. Yeah, I have to agree. What about for Joey? He should have got more, right? I think so. But even though I think he maybe deserved more, at the end of the day, it's what you could prove in court. And if there simply was not the evidence then there's not the evidence, unfortunately. Well, there was evidence of his obstruction and lying. He admitted to a crime. That's the evidence. But yeah. point noted, and, and who knows, would a longer sentence have made any difference really in their lives? I'm not really sure. I'm not sure if it would have served, you know, the goals of punishment maybe yeah. in some ways. But the discussion of the affair and the portrait painted of the Long Island Lolita was certainly not appropriate when discussing a child. 16-year-olds cannot consent. But this was a different time. I think what's interesting is that the way I think this would be different now probably is in reverse of then. So what do I mean? I believe the discourse would be different now around this case, right? I don't think that Amy would be framed in the same light. I think she would be framed more appropriately as a child who was also a victim, even if offender. Mm -hmm. That being said, I also believe in reverse, her punishment would be a lot harsher now than it was then. Why do you think that? Because I've seen enough cases with females her age, even if they were teenagers committing these crimes in what they perceive to be love triangles, Mm -hmm. who've received much harsher punishments because I think we also got tougher on crime. So I believe that she would be framed differently in the media, but I do think that she would have got a harsher sentence for attempted murder. Yeah, I, I could see it going either way. I'd also like to discuss Mary Jo for a minute here. Remember when I said she wasn't a very likable victim? This isn't quite victim blaming, but there is an expectation, I think we have, that victims will act in a certain way. And Mary Jo didn't fit the profile. Mm -hmm. You know, she was outspoken and she chose to stay with her unfaithful husband and the public. They didn't like it. But again, victims are not perfect. They're people. And victimization status does not necessarily change personality and nor should Mm -hmm. it and nor should we expect it to. And also, there are secondary victims here. Amy's parents divorced after her arrest, and Joey and Mary Jo's family suffered tremendously. So in the end, there were really no winners here. And for better or worse, this story and this case and the players will forever be infamous. Okay, well, I think that takes us to the end of today's episode. That was a lot of information. But before we go today, I believe we have a question from one of our patrons. Yes, and Megan, thank you for shedding some light on that case. Turns out I really knew nothing about it that I thought I did. Yes, uh, th- this is what happens. You think you know the story, but it's been a lot of time and, and a lot gets lost in the details. All right, Megan, today's question is, what is one case where the two of you had completely opposite opinions on? I mean, this is easy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You're going to say Melanie McGuire, right? Melanie McGuire, yes. Actually, you know what, Megan? We also disagreed on what happened to John Benet Ramsey, right? I think so. What was your conclusion on John Benet? Didn't I suspect that it was somebody in the family and you did you suspected it was someone outside the home? Yeah, that's correct. I think it was a neighbor, someone who lived in the area, someone who knew her. But if you didn't listen to Direct Appeal season one, we covered the murder of Bill McGuire. And after... Many years of researching the case, Megan and I came out kind of on different sides of the coin. We did. I would also say in general that you and I tend to maybe not disagree, but well, you tend to favor 
more rehabilitation. And I tend to be a little harsher with punishment for uh, several of our cases. I think we've come out a little bit differently in that regard. Yes. And I love that question because that's one I don't think we ever got. That's a pretty unique one. So thank you. I appreciate that one. Yeah. If you listen to all the episodes, you're going to see how many times we probably have disagreed. But thank you for that question. And thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. We will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include ABC News, an episode of American Scandal, CrimeLibrary.org, and The New York Times. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.